Today's first scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 42. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with his generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, gentlemen. Our second lesson comes from Mark's Gospel and the 8th chapter, just three verses from there. I should point out that the text that Floris read from, for us from Matthew 12, it happens again in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, if you're curious, a parallel passage where almost word for word the same exchange happens between Jesus and the Pharisees. This may be in Mark's Gospel the same experience kind of more briefly, or it might be another case of the same sort of thing happening, but I wanted to share it with you as well. Mark 8, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I was looking again at the book of Jonah in my Bible. I thought maybe it was three pages. Now that I look closer, it's only two pages in my Bible, tucked into the midst of the minor prophets in a vast expanse of Old Testament books. Does this little short story of Jonah matter? Does it matter to us today? Is it really worth spending so much time on? You're probably asking that of yourselves. Well, at least we know this. It mattered, this little story mattered to Jesus. And Jesus preaches, you might say, the book of Jonah succinctly, not over the course of nine weeks, but in the course of maybe nine or ten words, maybe 19 words. And he preaches it more forcefully than I have, and more forcefully even than Jonah has. And before we put the book of Jonah back on the shelf, I want us to take just one more look at it, but this time through the eyes of Jesus. And to do so, I want to focus on the text that Floris read for us, and we're going to look together at the way 
a trial, a testimony happen, and the way that Jesus points us to the truth and the tomb and the triumph through this little reflection on Jonah. The trial, the testimony, the true, the tomb, and the triumph. So let's take a look, shall we? First of all, the trial. You say, well, what trial? There's no trial here. There is sort of a trial. Jesus is teaching. And as usually happens, there's a mixed crowd. Or often he's teaching to a friendly crowd and who saunters up by him, but antagonistic religious leaders, hostile type people. And in the middle of his teaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law come up and they decide that it is time for a trial, an impromptu trial. Are you going to show us a sign, Jesus, of your authority or not? What makes you so important, Jesus, that we should drop everything and not just listen to you, but follow you? And this comes in a context where people could sense by listening to Jesus the authority that he had in his voice. He doesn't talk the way that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees talk. There's something different about him. And it's exactly this difference in the teaching of Jesus, in his voice, that really bothers some people. Because why? Well, because he's speaking directly to their hearts. And so the natural defense mechanism is to set up a barrier to protect your heart from the sharp impact of Jesus' words. And these Pharisees and teachers of the law, they think the best way to defend their hearts is to try to go on the offensive and to put Jesus on trial. And so they say, let's see it. This is a trial of ordeal. Let's see a sign, Jesus. And of course, uh, if it were you or me, we might say, all right, and then and we'd show some sign of our divine power and authority, and that would just shut everybody up and gain us lots of followers. But Jesus is smarter than us, right? And he could show a sign. In fact, he often does, right? Uh, the whole first half of the book of John, John's gospel, is so full of signs, I think seven of them, in fact, that we refer to the first half of John's gospel as the book of signs. Because Jesus is doing signs. Signs aren't bad, of course, but it's the demanding of signs. Show us a sign, Jesus, you think you're so special. That is the sign of a hostile heart, a defensive heart. Demanding a sign is a sign that you have already stationed soldiers at the gates of your heart, and you're ready to fire on anybody who would attempt to get in. Another way of saying this is the more direct way that Jesus says it, a crooked and a wicked generation demands a sign. And these people are saying, look, Jesus, your job here is not to press on my heart and to call for change and to call for loyalty and to call for love. Your job, if you're a religious leader, a real man of Israel, is to impress us with your power and authority. If you're really from God, let's see it. Show us a sign. 
Now, not all of us are religious leaders. None of us are religious leaders in that super formal sense. But there's times, isn't there, where before we're ready to trust the Lord Jesus, we kind of want him to show his stuff, right? Prove that he is trustworthy. Sometimes, whether we say it or not, at least our hearts say, show me a sign so that I know I won't be disappointed if I really trust you. But instead of showing off his supernatural power, Jesus preaches a little sermon, a little Old Testament sermon, a little Jonah sermon. And it's powerful, and once again, it's pointed right at their hearts. Jesus is on trial. Okay, fine, he says. Let's have a trial. And the next thing he does then is he calls witnesses up to the stand so that everybody can hear their testimony. And that's the second thing, the testimony in this little trial. Who does he call to bear witness? Uh, And what is their testimony? Well, during the reign of King Solomon, almost a millennium before this event takes place, at the high point of Israel's power and their wealth and their international prestige, the world started taking notice of this little country on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. And foreign governments, for a change, were less likely to push Israel around, and they were more likely to send a delegation, to send ambassadors, maybe even kings and queens to come themselves. And instead of bringing demands, uh, they were bringing gifts. And in the case of the Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba, probably, probably the Ethiopian queen or maybe the South Arabian queen of that time in Solomon's day, she shows up in Jerusalem. And she brings her caravan of diplomats with her, and she brings gifts to Solomon. And she is there not to make demands, but she's there because she has heard that there is, in fact, a God in Israel full of wisdom, and that this God grants wisdom to people who humbly ask for it. And so this queen comes, and she sits at Solomon's feet, and she wants to humbly receive this godly wisdom herself. And all those years before, what Jesus shows us is that this queen was taking the witness stand, and she was giving testimony. Jesus shows that the queen of Sheba becomes a witness against these antagonistic religious leaders. And you might think, okay, she testifies as a foreign leader against other foreign leaders who will not humbly bow down to Israel and to their divine wisdom. That's maybe how we would use her in a trial, right? But Jesus does something a little strange. He instead says, she testifies against every one of God's people who stands up tall and arrogant and proud. And against everyone who is trying to use the true God. Against everyone who demands signs of power rather than coming to the Lord and with a quiet heart seeking to learn God's wisdom. So the Queen of Sheba is a powerful witness here. But Jesus calls another star witness to the stand, actually a bunch of them. And the first of them is Jonah, but 
soon enough, Jonah brings all of the Ninevites into the witness box as well. And they crowd into that witness box and they bear testimony as well. The king, the commoners, and the cattle, along with Jonah himself. And the Ninevites are in the witness box with their sackcloth on and ashes on their heads and dust on their face. Why? Because their posture is sorrow for sin and repentance and a readiness and a hope to be forgiven and restored. They want to commit their lives once again to justice and mercy. If they repented, Jesus says, and they, God told Jonah, didn't even know their right hand from their left hand, they're so lost, then how could it be that you smart, educated, respected Israelite religious leaders cannot bow your hearts in humble repentance? So those are his two main witnesses. The queen of the south, Jonah and all of his Ninevite neighbors. And then after these star witnesses have given their testimony, Jesus begins to make his closing arguments. This is a quick trial, right? He's got to think on his feet, and he does. And what are his main points in his closing arguments? He says, I'm the true. I want you to look at the tomb, and I want you to see my triumph. The true, the tomb, and the triumph. First, Jesus says, I am the true. The true what? Well, he says, first, Jonah was really something, but the true and better Jonah is standing right before you. Jonah was a prophet whose preaching worked a great miracle in his time. Repentance and change happened. But Jonah, Jesus says, is nobody compared to me. The truer and the better Solomon is here, Jesus says. Solomon was a man of great wisdom, a sage of the Old Testament. And his wisdom even attracted the rulers of the nations to the God of Israel. But Solomon, in all of his glory, is nobody compared to me. If you look back earlier in Matthew 12, which part of which Floris read for us, you'll see that Jesus does the same thing with David and with the Old Testament priests and with the temple itself. Something greater, someone greater than all of these people and places is here. In fact, Jesus says, take all of them together, combine them, prophets, priests, kings, sages, rituals, and institutions, and you've got something glorious. Put them all together, and Jesus says, I am greater than all of them combined. And in fact, he says, they all point to me. They are all signs of my authority and my grace and my truth. I am the true, the true Jonah, temple, king, and sage. And then Jesus says, point two, he says, look at the tomb. Even though I'm the true Jonah, Solomon, David, priest, temple, the sign that you are going to see, the only one I'm willing to give, is the tomb. And you think, what kind of sign is that? But Jesus says, you want a sign? Well, just like Jonah was thrown overboard, 
to save those pagan sailors. This generation is going to throw me overboard. And I'm going to sink into the depths of death. And I'm going to spend three nights and three days in the belly of the tomb. And you're not going to repent like the people of Nineveh. You're not going to seek wisdom from me like the queen of the south. You are going to kill me, he says. But the tomb cannot contain me. And Jesus shows them by and by that he's going to wash up on the shores of immortal life in three days. He's going to fulfill the ministry of the prophets, priests, sages, and kings. And he says, I, the true and better Israel, I'm going to do for you, for Israel, I'm going to be for you what you could never do and be for yourself. He says, do you want a sign? The tomb is your sign. What a strange thing to say. But then the final point of his closing argument is the triumph, the triumph. What is it, after all, that Israel could never do or be for themselves? Well, it couldn't manage to do or to be God's wisdom and God's justice and God's truth and his salvation the way that God called Israel to be for the sake of the nations of the world. Israel said over and over again, Jonah said from the belly of the fish, salvation belongs to Yahweh, to our God, to the Lord. But how can a man like Jonah, whom we've gotten to know over the last eight weeks, how can a people like Israel, who we get to know over the course of the Old Testament scriptures, speak and live this truth? But Jesus is truer and better than Israel. He is the truer and better Israel. And he triumphs in every place where Israel tripped and fell. Did God love and delight in the prophets and priests and sages and kings of the Old Testament period? Of course he did. Did God put his spirit on them to do his work? Absolutely. Did God choose them for a time and a place? No doubt about it. But the choice that he makes in his son, in Jesus, is such the right choice. Earlier in Matthew 12, again, when Jesus shows up, his father says, from Isaiah's prophecy, Here, here at last is my my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. In his name, the nations will put their hope. If you thought Solomon was something, if you thought Jonah was something, that David and Moses and Elijah and Abraham were really something, it's as if the father is saying, well, then wait till you see my boy, Jesus. Jesus is God's triumph for Israel and for the world, for every nation. And all signs point to Jesus. Friends, the Bible has lots and lots of wisdom for us. It has instruction that can help us live our everyday lives, even in very practical ways. In fact, every night when 
the boys and Ellie and I gathered around and tried to do our nightly Bible reading. One of the boys prays the prayer, God, please help us to understand and to obey your word. Right? Give us help to live according to it. And the Bible also goes to great lengths to demonstrate God's power throughout history. You've got the wisdom and you've got the power in the Holy Scriptures. But if Jesus is teaching us any lesson here, it's this. That we must never, ever, ever, ever try to skip past the Lord Jesus Christ on the way to good tips from the Bible. We must never skip over the Lord Jesus on the way to the pursuit of spiritual power for our lives. Because there is no biblical wisdom that isn't summed up in Jesus. And there is no obedience that has not been embodied in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And there's no true prophetic word that doesn't come from the mouth of Jesus. And there's no power of God that's greater than the power of Jesus' blood and of his resurrection for us. R.T. France says it like this, the whole Old Testament is gathered up in Jesus. And that's the point of Jesus' little sermon to these demanding religious people. So friends, let's never try to use the Bible or to use our spiritual lives, our church services, our prayers, merely as a way for God to get God to do something for us that we want. We bring our requests and we lay our hearts bare before him. And we want things. But let's never demand that God give us signs by making our lives better without bowing before our Savior Jesus and proclaiming that he is all in all. You and I need the wisdom and the prophetic word and the kingship and the priestly prayers of King Jesus so that our everyday lives can be rich and full and abundant regardless of what might happen to us, whether we are in joy or in sorrow. And finally, let me put it like this. Maybe this has happened to you in the last couple of weeks. Your throat starts to get a little dry. Maybe your body feels a little achy. You feel fatigued. You start to wonder, do I need to take my temperature? Am I going to be one of the one of 1,000 people in Switzerland, if my math is right, that gets the coronavirus? If I do, am I going to be one of the one out of 100 people who maybe dies from it? What do you need when you start to get that scratchy throat and feel that you're not going to live forever? Well, you need the one who was overthrown by death and plunged into the darkness of the tomb, but who rose again and never will die again. You need him to walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death so that whatever happens, you can fear no evil. Or maybe you're struggling as you watch your children making choices that just break your heart. Does that feel like some of us as parents? And you think, how could they wander from 
my instruction from my example failed, failed as it sometimes was, but really, how could they wander from the Lord? And what do you need when you feel that way? You need to know that your heavenly father had a treasured and adopted son. They were called Israel. And they wandered off like a lost sheep. But that the heavenly father also had a natural son in Jesus who left home and who was lost, as lost as you can be on the cross of Calvary. A son that he had to watch go all the way into the darkness of the tomb. And so it's only by knowing that Jesus went through every experience of lostness that is imaginable, that we can trust his father, that we can trust our father as we watch our own daughters and sons wander. Or maybe you're grieving the death of your parents or your spouse. And it might have been 10 years ago, or it might have been 10 days ago. And you wonder, what do I do with this ache in my heart? All my prayers didn't keep them alive. And you hear pop songs on the radio, maybe, in the supermarket, and there are 20-year-old idols that are singing about their broken hearts, and you think, really? Do you know anything about a broken heart, really? Well, what do you need? Well, you need to embrace the love of the one who died for your sake, who rose again, never to die again. You need to learn the love of the one who promises to defeat the last enemy, the enemy of death, and to take the sting right out of death forever and ever. Friends, all signs point to Jesus. The sign of Jonah points to Jesus, but also also the sign that is your life that is my life, that is the life of our church together. While we grieve, while we suffer, while we hope, while we pray, while we try to walk humbly before our God and together, then we have become a sign. A sign. A sign that God is near to the brokenhearted. A sign that God is still good all the time. A sign that God himself has experienced our grief. And a sign that our sorrow doesn't ultimately have the last word. Our lives and our life together are a sign that point to Jesus. And so to point to Jesus over and over with our lives means that our eyes need to be fixed in good times and bad on Jesus. I wonder if you'll point with me as much as you can, as often as you can, with our, at our Savior. I wonder if we can point together as a people to our Savior and become a sign of his great love for us, for the sake of the nations around us. Father, we pray that the words spoken here, the meditations in all of our hearts, that you would find them acceptable in your sight, purified through the ministry of Jesus, who is our rock and our redeemer. We make our prayer together in his name. Amen.